then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But go now to my place, which is, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house, which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you, and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. Well, where is God sending Jeremiah here? To the temple gate. To go there and preach a sermon like this, took a lot of guts. Because he's preaching right there, on their own turf, what challenges the system. It is one thing to preach a tough sermon to people who agree with you. You know, that's not so tough. You know, because you know they're, they've got your back, they agree with you. In fact, they'll actually be pleased with you. Preach it to the people who don't agree with you. That's a lot more challenging. You know, he's to go right to the temple gate and right there he challenges the people coming to worship in the temple telling them to do what in verse 3? Perform your ways and your actions. Yes. They've got to change their thinking and their behavior. That's what he's telling these worshipers coming to the temple to worship. And if they will do that, then what will God do? Yes. They're continuing to reside in the land demanded them to change their life. That's what he's saying. Now they would respond. He's giving their answer. They would say this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now what were they trying to say by that? The Lord is still pleased with them. Nothing will ever happen. Why not? It's the temple of the Lord. Exactly. It's God's temple. It's the temple of the Lord. It's the place where God dwells. He's not going to do anything to his temple. So long as we're here with the temple, it's like we've got almost just a guaranteed, you know, get out of jail free card. You know, we've just got a guaranteed exemption. This is God's temple. Nothing's going to happen to that. Kind of like a good luck charm. Do you remember an earlier time in Israelite history where they had the same kind of mentality towards something that belonged to God? The ark. the ark. In 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines defeated them. They thought, well, the problem was we don't have the Lord's presence in the battle. Right? And they thought the way to get the Lord's presence in the battle was to take the ark to the battlefield. Wrong. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, they just captured the ark. 
well, they lost their God right then and there. Uh, of course, you know, there's no such superstitious thing that just having it makes God present with us. You know, they thought just the temple being there was a guarantee of security. And they thought if they said it often enough, you know, triple repetition there, that would make it true. Well, that also doesn't really help. So he says, if you will really change, and he gives some specific suggestions in verses 5 and 6, then I will let you go in this place. <laughs> you know, it's kind of an ultimatum. Your staying in the land depends on you changing. You don't change, you don't stay. God can evict them off of his land. And the fact that the temple was there in Ezekiel, who was a contemporary prophet in a different venue, he was with some who had already been taken captive, Ezekiel shows horrible idolatry occurring in the temple in Ezekiel 8. Almost an analogy. Can you imagine you're married to some woman and she starts, you know, putting up, you know, pictures of her lover boy all over the house and, you know, other things that remind her of him, you know, and things like that. Uh, how many of you know would uh, be cool with that? <laughs> you know, hey, whoa. Well, when that happened, when Ezekiel saw that in the very next chapter, really the next three chapters, he sees God and his presence leaving where he was. Where was God, by the way, in the temple? In the Holy Bowl is where? Above the ark. Above the ark, between the cherubim. Sees him leaving there, going to the doorway of the temple, leaving the temple, leaving Jerusalem, going out east of Jerusalem, and so forth. He sees God just left. You know, I mean, what man would stay in the house of the woman who's putting up all these things for, about her lover? You're not going to stay in that house. God didn't stay in that house. And so there's nothing to keep the Babylonians from destroying the temple. It's really an empty shell. God's not there anymore. He says, you know, what you've done, and this is really sad, in verse 9, they commit all these terrible crimes. And then they come into the temple and say, okay, we're good. We're in the temple. It's sort of like what people do sometimes with the church assemblies, maybe. You know, we may do all sorts of terrible things. You know, there ever been a family who may be on their way to church, lose their temple, temper with each other, maybe cuss each other out or whatever, and then comes inside the church building, smile, and everything's great. You know, we're good Christians. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work that way. He said, you made it like a den of robbers. You know, it's like your hideout, you know, from the consequences of your crimes. You know, that, that's what's really happening. So the temple, you know, uh, worship, has been degraded to the level of like a magic spell to ward off the disaster. <laughs> That's what it amounts to. They have this huge disconnect between their worship and their life. As long as we worship, okay, doesn't matter what we do. We're worshiping, okay. Well, does God want us to worship, okay? Yeah. But does God only want to be the Lord of Sundays? 
You know, does the Lord have an interest in every day of the week and every place we are? I mean, if we really love the Lord and, and submit to the Lord, then it affects everything we do. You know, I, I've told this story once before here, but maybe it's a good illustration of how we feel. I worked with a guy for a little while trying to help him who told me the story of how it even shocked him when he was so used to messing with stuff on the internet on his phone that he caught himself doing it in the church building between Bible study and worship. And then it horrified him to realize he was there looking at this garbage. He was scheduled to help pass the Lord's Supper that day. Now, you know, we think of, you know, <laughs> the time between Bible study and worship in the church building. <laughs> you know, can you imagine how horrified you'd feel if you caught yourself trying to find something bad to look at then and there? But what is the temple of God today? Is it the church building? It's our body, it's our heart, it's our life. Why should we feel horrified by that happening in the church building, but it's perfectly okay in the life where God dwells in our heart. You know, I mean, it's like, why do we think God cares about what I do inside the church building, but he's okay with anything I do outside? That's where their problem was. It wasn't that they shouldn't be concerned about their worship. It's that they ought to be concerned about their lives. Comments and questions on that. Boy. We, uh, once a week we go to Putnamville study with some of the prisoners there. One of the things we do is we read the journals. Uh, in the plus dorm, there's, they have to keep a daily journal of what's going on in their lives and so forth. And uh, this last Thursday, one of the men had written on uh, one of the Sundays, this is God's day, I can't cuss today. Same kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it interesting how we see that? You know, as long as I don't cuss on Sunday, then I can cuss any other time I want to because, you know, but, but that's exactly what they thought. Well, we're in the temple, so we're okay. Now, what I do outside the temple, that's kind of my life. That's my time. I can do whatever I want. I get in the temple, we're good. But we think that way. It's amazing what we do. And if you really thought about your body as God's temple, you know, think about going into the Holy of Holies, looking at garbage on your cell phone. Whoa. You cannot, if you have any concept of the sacredness of God's presence in the Holy of Holies, you would not do that. There's a whole lot of things you wouldn't even think about doing in the Holy of Holies. Right there before God. The thing of it is, that's me. It's my life. It's where God dwells now. I am the Holy of Holies. God's presence is in me. And so if we'd only think about that, we wouldn't have this idea, well, church building or Sunday or when I'm around other Christians, the rest of the time, do whatever I want. He said, you made it a den of robbers because you're robbers. And then you come in here like it's your lair and it's your hideout and, and you're, you're, you're you know, free. It's kind of like being on base. 
You know, God can't get you. Isn't that amazing that they would think that? Then it's amazing that we think those things sometimes. Other thoughts about that? To verse 11. Well, God suggests a quick tour. Where did he want them to go in verse 12? Shiloh. Why Shiloh? That was where the tabernacle was when they came into the land. And what happened to Shiloh? Yes, it got destroyed probably when the ark was stolen by the Philistines. So, what about this idea that uh, the enemies can never destroy the place where God put his name? Well, it didn't work for Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. Why do they think it's going to work for Jerusalem? That will explode their delusion about the temple right then and there. You know, looking back at their history, will sort of, you know, explode their misconception that we're okay because it's the temple. You know, you defile a place by, by sin, God can destroy it whether he's ever lived there or not. And he says, I told you that by the prophets over and over again. You wouldn't listen. Alright, so if they don't think about Shiloh, look at verse 15. What other illustration does he give where he destroyed a place where he dwelt? Ephraim, which means Israel, the northern kingdom. What had happened to them? Assyria took them, wiped them out. Yeah, so, and they were God's people. They were God's nation. So don't think that because the temples in Jerusalem, nothing can happen to you. It's just not true. Whatever you're using is a lucky charm that makes you think that my behavior doesn't matter I've got this, you know, I've got my rabbit's foot in my pocket, or whatever it is. No. Life matters. Comments or questions? Sixteen to twenty? So do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead together to make cakes to offer to the Queen of Heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says, My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field and on the crops of your land, and it will burn and not be quenched. Well, you know, it was common for prophets to intercede for people, you know, for the people that they're prophesying to. What would be some examples of prophets that interceded for the people? That prayed to God on behalf of the people. Moses is a great example. Uh, God the people spared. Samuel, absolutely. Job. Yes, for his friends. I'm thinking about another one, but none of you will think about it, probably. Yeah? How about Amos, chapter 7? 
couple of times God showed him visions where the people were going to be destroyed and Amos prayed for them and God relented. Then God showed him why he was going to do it with the plumb line vision. The next time God shows him a vision like that, he doesn't pray for them because he realizes why God's got to destroy them. Well, what does he tell Jeremiah here? He says, don't pray for this people. Don't intercede. I'm not going to listen to it. Their sin is so bad that God won't allow Jeremiah to pray for them. That is really bad. That is really tragic when it gets to that extreme. You'd think God would always say, well, you know, at least pray for them. But he's not going to. He's not going to respond because he's determined to punish them because their lives are corrupt. Wow. And then you see what they're doing and you understand it. Look at 17 and 18. What were they doing? In the streets of Jerusalem, they're committing idolatry. Yes. And he specifically talks about one type of idolatry they were committing. What were they doing? Yes. What about in 18? Maybe that means the stars, but what does he call the idol? Queen the Queen of Heaven. Whatever that means, some kind of a goddess, I assume. Look at how they, their worship became a family activity. The children would go out and gather the wood. The fathers would make the fire. The women would make the cakes. You know, the family all united in worship to the Queen of Heaven. Whoa. That is really bad. Can, just think about the Israelites worshiping some goddess. You know, is it, is it always good to have a family, you know, working together and worshiping together? Well, it all depends on what they're doing. You know, family unity is not the end-all and be-all. In this case, it was a disaster. You know, they're doing this to spite me, God says. Do they spite me? Well, the truth is, they're more spiting themselves. You know, they're hurting themselves when they do this. Uh, they're the ones that were going to get burned uh, by the wrath of God being poured on, out on them. They, it would burn them and they would not be quenched. So God was punishing them because of their infidelity. Again, comments and questions? I'm looking at verse 16 where uh, Jeremiah is told not to pray for the people. Just imagine how hard that would be. I mean, these are his own countrymen, his own people. Yet he's seeing all these things and uh, he's prophesying all these things about them and now he's not. He's told not to make intercession for them. Just... If he were to have prayed for them anyway, how much would it have helped? Yeah. You know, that is his prayer going to forgive somebody who's not repentant. You know, sometimes you might even do this. Do you ever just start doing doing wrong and not doing what God says? And you say to somebody, pray for me, but you have no intention of changing what you're doing. Well, is that really going to change anything? I mean, well, I've got a righteous person praying for me. Well, you, is, is God going to respond to those prayers if you're not willing to change? That's kind of the situation here. 
Jeremiah is a righteous man. God respects Jeremiah and all that. But the prayers of a righteous man won't help someone who refuses to change. It's kind of a scary thing. Other thoughts? Verse 20, it's not just the, like earlier we saw the young and the old, we saw everyone's getting it by this pouring out of wrath. But here it's everyone and everything, all the beasts and all the land. It's a complete destruction. Good point. Our misbehavior affects the world around us. Other thoughts? It's crazy that the whole family is united in going against the Lord and making idolatry. God wanted families to be united, but he probably didn't want to be united in committing idolatry. Amen. Um, 21 to 26. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, I have burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. But I did not speak to your fathers to command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And you will walk in all of the way which I commanded you, that it may be well with you. That they do not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent uh, you all my servants, the prophets, daily, rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did not. They did more evil than their fathers. Alright, this is an interesting passage. In 21, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. Now, do you understand that there were different kinds of sacrifices? From Leviticus, especially 1 through 7, almost like different categories. And the rules were different for each kind of sacrifice. So like there was one kind of sacrifice that the people actually could eat a part of the sacrifice. Do you know what kind of sacrifice that was? Peace offering, yeah, fellowship or peace offering. There were certain kinds of sacrifices that the people couldn't eat any of it, but the priests could eat some of it, like what? Sin offering, the guilt offering, the grain offering, sometimes it depends on your translation, they may be labeled differently. But there was one kind of offering that nobody was allowed to eat any of. And what kind of offering was that? The burnt offering. The burnt offering, all of it was burned on the altar, and the skin and so forth was taken outside and burned. So none of it was to be eaten. He says, Add your burnt offering to your sacrifices and eat flesh. Whoa. That's weird. I mean, because God had always con condemned them for eating of the burnt offering, it's shocking to hear him say, go ahead and eat it. Why would he say, go ahead and eat it? Exactly. You know, doesn't mean anything to me. Might as well eat it. You know, not doing you any good any other way. 
that's that's just really that that's really trying to wake them up. You know, um, I I don't know what would be a good analogy for us. You know, but but it means like saying something almost outrageous. You know that that you do. You know, I mean, what if? We would, for example, perhaps be very concerned, and properly so, with the sacredness of the Lord's Supper. How would you feel, hard to imagine, but how would you feel if somebody started uh, observing the Lord's Supper with other materials? You know, instead of bread, it's hot dogs. Instead of grape juice, it's, you know, Mountain Dew. Wouldn't that, I mean, that's almost horrifying to think about. That somebody would be so, you know, lighthearted about what the Lord has given, about his sacrifice. Would you try to do something like that? What if God said, go ahead and put hot dogs and Mountain Dew on the Lord's table? You know, that would kind of give you the shock value of that. What? No! Well, you might as well. Certainly isn't any worship to me the way you're living such wicked, corrupt life. Do you think I'm counting this as my supper? It had nothing to do with me. That's kind of what he's saying. Doesn't mean anything to me because it's not based on a righteous life. And then he says something else that's shocking. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. I, didn't, I did not command them to offer sacrifice. I commanded them to obey, obey my voice. God didn't command them to offer sacrifices. I thought he did. statements we would make. What if I say discrimination is not unfair, it's illegal. Do I mean by that that discrimination in and of itself is not unfair? I mean that's not, that's not the bad part. It's just illegal. Or what if I say Larry was not one of those players that played basketball. He lived basketball. When are you saying Larry didn't play basketball? No, you're saying more than that. So when he says, you know, he didn't command you to offer sacrifices, he commanded you to obey his voice. See, they thought the whole point of what he said was for them to just be sacrifice offerers. Well, no. His point was not just to get them offer sacrifices, he wanted them to obey his voice. So that's the idea. It's not saying I didn't command you anything about sacrifice any more than it's saying that Larry didn't play basketball. Hey, he played it, but 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 he didn't play it, he lived it. You know, there's something stronger that you can say. I think that's the nature of that. And uh, they miss that whole obeying his voice part. <laughs> you know, and that's a kind of a big part to have missed. Now they didn't obey his voice. They didn't do what he said, and they didn't listen to the prophets that God had been sending them constantly for a long time back, and he sends them daily, rising early, and sending them, but they didn't listen, they didn't listen, they didn't listen, they didn't listen, so there. 
we've got to remember the same thing. Worship is useless if it proceeds from a wicked life. Because all I'm doing if I worship from a wicked life is just trying to bribe God. I'm not trying to live for him. I'm not trying to obey him. I'm just trying to get him off my back. Comments or thoughts? Third, 27 to 34. Speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, This is a nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from your mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generations of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight declares the Lord. They have set the, their detestable things in that house, which is called by my name, the Bible. They have built the high places of Sophia, which is in the valley of the son of him, to burn their sons and their daughters in fire, which I did not command, and it did not come in my mind, come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Tophet, or when the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of Slotcher. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no other place. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Then I will come, I will make them, then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah, and from the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of the joy, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land will become a room. Well, Jeremiah preached to them. But they're not going to listen. Say to them, this is a nation that didn't obey, didn't accept correction. It says, cut off your hair and cast it away. Maybe, he's saying, make some kind of special consecration to God, like a Nazarite vow where they cut off their hair to start with and then let it grow. Maybe he's saying, just go ahead and uh, do that. I don't know. But, uh, or maybe he's saying, end the vow. You know, you're not committed to the Lord anymore. Take up a lamentation on the bare heights. That's verse 29. Look back for a moment at 3.2. 3.2, the bare heights is where they've been unfaithful to God. Probably where they offered worship to the idols. So the bare heights where they were engaged in infidelity was the place where they were going to lament because God was going to punish them Look at the end of verse 29, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. We love those kind of expressions in our day. We call this generation wrath. You know, that, that's this generation. They're the ones that have the outpouring of God's punishment. And he talks about some of what they've done. Idols in God's house. Just like I suggested, you know, Photos of her lover boy in their in the house uh, that her husband owns. You know, whoa, that's an outrage. High places of Topheth to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. You understand what that is talking about? What does it mean to burn them in the fire? Child sacrifice. 
the idols had warped the people's thinking so much they were so you know enchanted by the power of gods like Molech that they actually offered their children as burnt offerings to this God to try to get this God to bless them and favor them. Do you see how warped and perverted not following God had led them? He says, I didn't command it. It was the last thing in my mind. You know, it never even crossed my mind to command that. God is not in favor of child sacrifice. You know, of all things that they would have done. You know, it's kind of amazing that you'd even worship a God that demanded that. It's amazing what people will do who reject God. They'll swallow things that no sane person would even think about. And yet that's how far gone they were. Again, is it any wonder God destroyed them? What else would you do if you were God? Comments and thoughts to 31. He is going to punish them. He's going to turn that area into a giant graveyard. Except nobody's going to bury them. They'll just, their corpses will be out there exposed for the vultures and, and the buzzards and, you know, wolves and whatever like to feed on people's bodies. And no one will frighten them away. You know, they'll be exposed and, and no one will be there to try to, you know, shoo away the uh, types of animals that feed on that. That reminds me of something. Maybe Jeremiah was making allusion to this. Do you remember somebody who did stand guard on some dead bodies to frighten the birds away and so forth so that the bodies weren't just eaten by the animals. Who is that? The mother, the mother of Saul's descendants. What was her name? $64,000 question here. It's amazing what things we forget. Rizpah. Yeah. Rizpah did that. I believe that's Second uh, Samuel 21. Uh, so that's a long story. I won't go into it. But I think it's probably an allusion back to that. There's no rispa here to uh, scare off the birds and the beasts. And uh, God just silences the cities of Judah and Jerusalem. They are gone. It's all one big graveyard. Comments and questions? Where did you say Rizpah was I believe it's Second Samuel 21. What was the what was the passage to talk about the, not the, these, these similar things not being heard in it? Those sounds, the voice of was that Babylon? Revelation eighteen, the end of Revelation eighteen with Babylon, yeah. Not be heard in it, yes. Not be heard in yes. Not be heard in yes. Yes, that's Revelation eighteen, twenty one to twenty three. Okay, that's yeah. mentioning Babylon you're referring to Yeah, referring to the the worldliness, city of Rome or whatever in that day. Yeah. Good point. There are some other passages also, don't ask me where, that say some similar things to this in the prophets. Other thoughts? A good show, uh, in verse 34, it kind of shows how like, even when you live in sin, 
the world does a good job of giving you an imitation of joy and gladness. Because they were still, you know, giving in marriage and still acting out in accordance with the law when it comes to those things. But the joy and gladness that they were showing wasn't real joy and gladness at all because when the judgment comes, it's going to be wiped out. Yeah, when the judgment comes, the party's over. Permanently. You know, I don't know for sure if he is still in the temple area at this point. I don't necessarily, you know, I, I, perhaps, perhaps he's still there at the temple. Because if he is, that's an interesting parallel. It's going to be a loud city, and then, you know, it's not going to be the crowd comes. And if he is, it's interesting. You know, the uh, affront to the whole nation, to the leadership of the temple, for him to be there saying that. I am not sure it's the same sermon. But in chapter 26, he was in the temple, and there were major repercussions. They almost killed him over a sermon in the temple. The same one or a different one, I don't know. Other thoughts? Kind of like the urgency that he's teaching, talking to. Great invasion that's gonna just desolate everything. And here he is warning them, but still they're not listening. It kind of reminds me of what people are today. Like there's a judgment day coming, there's a lake of fire. You know, we're not supposed to just tell them what they're what they want to hear. You know, if they're walking off the cliff, you gotta tell them you're walking off the cliff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, preaching the unpopular thing. You know, speaking the word of God to people who don't want to hear it takes some courage. Uh, but it, I mean, that's what the prophets had to do. That was, that was exactly what God wanted them to do. Other thoughts? <clears throat> Chapter 8, verses 1 to 3 really continues this. At that time, saith the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of the princes, bones of the priests, bones of the prophets, and bones of all the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. They shall spread them out before the sun, the moon, and all the hosts of heaven whom they have loved, whom they have served, and after whom they have walked, and whom they have sought, and whom they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered, nor be buried. They shall be as dung upon the face of the earth, and death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of them that remain of this evil family, which remain in all the places whither I have driven them, saith the Lord of hosts. Well, look at the final chapter in this punishment. Uh, even those who are buried, what does God do? Yeah. It, it's very disrespectful, especially in their day, to desecrate dead bodies. You give them a decent burial if you want to have any respect for them, and you leave their bones undisturbed to exhume their corpses and expose their bones is really, uh, you know, very contemptuous. And where does God expose their bones to? The sun, moon, and the host of heaven. Sun, moon, and stars. What have they done with the sun, moon, and stars? Yeah. Love. Sir. Gone after. Saw it. 
you know. They've done all sorts of things. So you lay the bones of these dead worshipers out before these heavenly bodies they worshipped, and how much did the heavenly bodies help them? You know, isn't that kind of uh, uh, sad? You know, uh, they just bleach the bones in the sun. You know, they don't do anything worthwhile. You know, it's almost kind of like, imagine them bowing down before these heavenly bodies. This is kind of uh, like a really sick imitation of that as the bones are just strewn out over the ground as if they were on the ground worshiping these heavenly bodies who can't help them one little bit. Um, you know, all that the gods do is cause you to die. Life is associated with God. So death will be chosen rather than life in verse 3. You choose idols over God, you choose death over life. That's the, that's the alternatives that you've got. So this is kind of like the final chapter in this uh, you know, passage showing the outrageous uh, misbehavior here. Comments and thoughts. Uh, four to seven. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened and heard that he has spoken what is not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course like a horse charging into the battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, and the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their immigrate of their migration. But my people do not know the ordinance of the world. He's trying to come up with ways of showing the people how wrong, how unnatural their wickedness is. Now he says, you know. What happens if you fall? What do normal people do? Get back up. You ever fallen before? Yeah. What did you do? What did you do? Got back up, right? I mean, you know, you, you surely tripped and fell sometime. Did you just stay down on the ground and <laughs> fell? Well, you get up. They fall. What do they do? Stay there. You know, or what if, uh, what if you get on the wrong road? You start going in the wrong direction. Besides the fact that if you're male, you don't ask for directions, <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. Duh. Hey, haven't you done that before? Now, if you're my age, I do it about every other day. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, I was with Caleb the other day. He didn't even tell me. I just, like, didn't make the turn I was supposed to make. And suddenly I realized, I'm not going the direction that's going to lead me where I want to go. You know, and he thought I just found a new way or something. <laughs> I just watched what I was doing. But what we did is we turned around in the driveway and we went back. And wouldn't that be kind of strange? You're on the wrong road, you're going the wrong direction, you just go, well, you know, I guess I'll just go that way. I just, I guess I'll just never get to where I'm going. You know, I'll see what happens this direction. You know, that doesn't work really well. We don't normally do that. You correct your mistakes. You do the wrong thing, you correct it. But, but 
you know, they just keep right on going in the wrong direction, getting farther and farther away from the Lord. This is ridiculous. Why would you do that? Pride. You don't want to admit you're wrong. Or fear. Fear of Okay. Yeah, maybe so, but you don't want to go there. You know, sometimes it's like, ah, I want to mess up. Might as well just go on down. I, I want to be blown it. You ever felt that way? I mean, you know, I just I just I just went, I, I made the wrong turn. I give up. <laughs> Would you do that in real life? You know, why do you drive? You made the wrong turn. You ever say, I made the wrong turn, I might as well give up. You know, I was going the wrong place. I mean, you know. Well, turn around. But in life, turn around. Turn back to God. Don't just say, I already, I already went the wrong direction. Okay. But that's, that's what he's seeing them doing. It's like, this doesn't make sense. Nobody in their right mind does this. But he says, I've listened and heard they've spoken what's not right. No man repents of his wickedness. Nobody says, what have I done? You know, they never even stop to ask, where am I going? What am I doing? What have I done? They go on. You know, I mean, the road doesn't look familiar. You have no idea where you're at. And you don't stop and say, where am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? And I get back to where I want to be. You just, you just go on. That looks familiar. I have no idea where this is going to lead me, but, well, I'm here. You know, I mean, any person in their right mind tries to figure it out, tries to fix things. Except for them. So he's showing this is just so unnatural. This is so weird. You know, no rational person behaves this way. But don't we do that with our sins? I mean, have there not been times when you're just like, I know this is wrong. I know this is the wrong way. But I'm already on it. I'm already doing it. I just keep going. Wow. That doesn't make sense. If you know it's wrong, stop it. Turn. It's the only thing we can do. You don't just say, well, I already did something wrong. I already messed up. So I'll just go farther away. I'll just get farther away from my destination. You would never do that. Thoughts about that? Yogi Berra says, uh, you have to be careful if you don't know where you're going because you might get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be a problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, statements like this ought to make us really think about our life. Ought to make us really think about how foolish we are. When it's stubbornness, pride, or whatever else, we just won't change when we're doing the wrong thing. It's always best not to take another step in the wrong direction. You know, how soon do you turn the car around once you realize you're going the wrong way? as soon as possible. You want to get another 20 miles in the wrong direction? I told the other day about my friend years ago who was in the middle of Mississippi. He was trying to come to Kentucky. Not little. And so he drove two hours. Some of you may not know geography. He drove two hours to a sign that says, Welcome to Arkansas. 
probably not the quickest way to get to Kentucky <laughs> or Mississippi. What do you do when you're driven, driven two hours in the wrong direction? He was really kind of wanting to go back home. So he turned around and he drove two hours in the right direction to get back where he started from and then kept going. What else do you do? You say, I've already driven two hours in the wrong direction. Well, I might as well just go on. Maybe I'll end up in the Pacific or something. <laughs> you don't do that. But we do it in our lives. He says, they're like a horse charging into battle. I haven't seen a horse charge into battle, but I think the idea is, you know, this horse so set on the battle, he just plunges headlong into it. You know, just charge. You know, so we, we, we go into sin just full blast. You know, just, just all out in the wrong direction. There's only one thing worse than, you know, going slowly in the wrong direction. That's going quickly in the wrong direction. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes like, okay, I, I'm just going to go faster. Wait a minute, don't do that if you're going the wrong way. Just closing your eyes and say, okay, I'm just going to, no, stop, slow down. Start making some right turns. Or, verse 7, what do birds do in the, in the, in the, in the spring? They migrate. Where do they go? What would we say they go? Back. Home, yeah. They have a homing instinct. I, I understand nothing about that. I know very little about animals. But I know they do. I don't exactly know how they do that. I don't really know how they know it's the right time. I don't know how they ever figure out where to go because sometimes they go thousands of miles. But they always go back to where they belong. And when we get way far away from the Lord, what do we do? What should we do? Migrate. Migrate. Go back. Sometimes we don't have enough the, as much sense as God gave geese. You know, they don't have to get back home. That's what we've got to do. And sometimes it's discouraging. Because sometimes we feel like, I just messed up so much. I'm so far away. Well, come back closer. You know, we, that's what a bird would do. I, to me, it would be demoralizing to be a bird and know you're thousands of miles away from home. It's a lot of flying. You know, I would think that'd be tiring to a bird even. I don't know. But it's what they do. You know, we think, you know, failures is kind of like normal. Like, this is the way it's going to be. But we're the only creatures God made that seemingly lose track of how to get back home, how to turn back to God. We can do that. We have to be willing to. And sometimes it just starts by admitting I'm not home. I'm not where I need to be. Well, being willing to face up to that and then turn back. I love these illustrations of Jeremiah because you can see them. They're just exactly what we've got to do. And it's what they weren't doing. Thoughts and comments on all that. Excellent point. 
you know, if once we messed up, it was hopeless and pointless anyway, then yeah, you'd see that. But it's not. What about the prodigal son? How far off course had he gotten? Yeah, I mean, man, he was, you know, as low as you could go. He was as far away as you could get. Could he come back home? Was it easy for him to come back home? Probably not. Was the father finally willing to receive him when he came back home? He wasn't finally willing. He was thrilled. He ran to meet him and threw a party for him. So we've never messed up so badly. But what God wouldn't be eager to receive if we come back home. That is really encouraging. Man, you can imagine a God who wouldn't want to do that. There may be earthly fathers who won't do that. There are probably a few earthly fathers who would say, you cross this line and you will never be my son again. Thankfully, God didn't say that. What a blessing. Comments. I think that's a good place to uh, end and reflect on. It's been really good to look through these things uh, this morning. And, uh, you know, I would really encourage you, you know, go back through and reread what we've studied. Not just to read it, but go back through and think about some of these illustrations and comparisons. Some of these things that really make you think about your life. And just think about what we ought to learn from this for us. You know, Jeremiah wrote this more than 2,500 years ago, you know, to people on the other side of the globe. But God's word is always relevant and fresh and, and will really help us. And, and none of these things are really what they ought to be in our life if we're not really focusing on how to live them in our life. That's something we really need to do with these passages of Jeremiah. And, and, you know, always studying things like this ought to just give it our appetite to want to learn and study more. To just want to know these things better. To, because we see how much God knows us and how much we need what he says. So it's really encouraging to, uh, to be able to be together and to be able to share these things together. Anything that needs to be said before we dismiss? Paul, you want to leave us Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that you have given to us. We thank you so much that we have the we have your map to be able to get back to you. Lord, we pray that we will humble ourselves when we fall down, that we will pick ourselves up and to go back to you. Please help us to learn from everything that is in your script, holy scriptures, Lord. Please help us to change when it's needed and to teach others. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship that we all share. And Lord, again, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, please bless us today as we go back home. And please bless our travels with safety. It is in your blessed Son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.